Hey everybody, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Real Talk podcast. We hope that these discussions will inform and inspire you to engage in your own Real Talk. Today's episode is brought to you by our official sponsor, Trivan, builders of custom trucks, trailers, and enclosure buildings tailored to your needs. Be sure to check them out at www.trivan.com. A big thanks to them for making these conversations possible. Now, on to the episode. Welcome, everybody, to uh, this episode of Real Talk. Uh, on today's show, we have on Ray Pennings from Cardis, and I'll just read you a brief bio of Ray so you all know who he is. Uh, he co-founded Cardis in the year 2000, currently serves as the executive vice president working out of the Ottawa office. Ray has a vast amount of experience in Canadian industrial relations and has been involved in public policy discussions and as a political activist at all levels of government. He is a respected voice in Canadian politics, contributing as a commentator, pundit, and critic in many of Canada's leading news outlets and as an advisor and strategist on political campaign teams. Ray Pennings, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is our pleasure, or my pleasure, I guess, today without Tyler. So uh, we're going to be talking all about the work Curtis does and um, their impact in Canadian public life. I think before we get into Cardis, uh, you're obviously one of the founding members over there. Let's talk a bit about yourself, your background, how you got into politics, education. Give us the rundown on who Ray is. So, um, post son of post World War II Dutch immigrants, um, was in Christian school. I was in grade eight, and um, when I was in grade eight, there was nobody I knew who was a member of a political party. And okay. um, the Joe Clark government. Um, was elected and fell actually in December of the year I was in grade eight. And there was, uh, so I was in Christian school in St. Thomas. Okay. There was another fellow in the Christian school by the name of Mark Marison. Yeah. And we were debating politics all the time. It was on the news. Governments don't fall every day. And you're this just is, at the age where you start to become aware of that. This is like 1980? This is roughly? 1980. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, fall of 79, or winter of 79, yeah. actually. Yeah. So um, actually, over the Christmas, I think the government fell December 11 or 13 or whatever. So Christmas yeah. holidays were there. Yeah. And ironically, both Mark and I came back in the new year. And we both, he went and joined the Young Liberals, and I went and joined the Young Conservatives over the holidays. And we thought we'd one-up each other, and ironically, we both did it. And ironically, we both were 13 years old at the time, and you had to sort of stretch the truth a bit to sign a card because you were supposed to be 14. So my first actual political act was one of fraud. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) But uh, we got involved in uh, that campaign. Um, Ironically, Mark continued with a significant career. Um, He was the campaign manager for Stéphane Dion, who was active in liberal circles, uh, was the... um, husband of Christy Clark when she was the premier of uh, British Columbia and just okay. ran for Vancouver mayor. Oh, wow. Uh, so he continues uh, to be active um, in politics, yeah. but we were, um, we were hashing it out in the grade eight classroom. Yeah. And that's really where the story began. Um, from there on, I, um, I, I got active. I actually managed my first campaign when I was 18. Yeah. Um, I left the Conservative Party shortly after Mulroney was elected in 84, along with a whole pile at that, of people who left. Um, you may recall that that was the time in which the Reform Party started, the Confederation of Regions Party started, and the Christian Heritage Party started. Mm-hmm. And um, I was recruited fairly early on. I actually became very involved in organizing the Christian Heritage Party 
ran as a candidate in the 1988 election okay. and um, remained to this day the candidate with the highest number of votes for the Christian Heritage Party. <laughs> um, very fast forward, um, there was some conflict in the party um, regarding the direction and how principles and tactics and uh, yes. that carried forward. Yep. I was at the center of that and I was on the losing end of that, so got kicked out of the party. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so my another claim to fame, I guess, so it's a one sort or other. During the 90s, um, worked on political campaigns for all sorts, uh, for municipal. I think I managed nine campaigns over that period of time. Wow. Uh, uh, a lot of local aldermanic campaigns for Christians, a couple at, at uh, provincial, federal levels. All across the country? Uh, uh, well, mostly or... in the in the southwestern Ontario, yeah. Hamilton, Niagara area. Yeah. And uh, in 2000, was recruited uh, by the Canadian Alliance. Uh, Stockwell Day was the leader at the time, was recruited to become the candidate in that riding. Um, and... It's not quite as neat as saying I lost the election and started Cardis because the, the work was already starting prior. Mm. As a matter of fact, it was in 1997, I had managed the campaign for a Canadian reformed candidate who actually ran for the Progressive Conservative Party okay. in the 1997 federal election. And, you know, as those of, of your listeners know who've been involved in politics, when you get involved as a candidate or a campaign manager or a senior level, you're basically giving three to six months of your life in which you're for six days a week getting up at six of them. You've got two jobs. Yeah. Um, and Michael Van Pelt, who uh, Michael, uh, Michael and I went to university together. We lived together when we were in university. He was the best man at my wedding. At that time, he was the general manager of the Sarnia-Lampton Chamber of Commerce. Mm -hmm. I was working in labor relations, but politicking on the side. Yep. And uh, our families would get together every year between Christian, Christmas and New Year's, and we try to solve the world's problems. <laughs> and that was a year in which I had, um, I had managed this campaign and dog-tired and all the rest. Yep. And we were asking ourselves if it was worth it. And this was the question we debated that night. If every candidate and campaign that we had been involved in, and Michael's career was sort of similar to mine, and Michael actually was a municipal councillor himself. If every Christian we had supported had gotten to, into office, would there actually be a noticeable cultural change or difference? And we came to the conclusion that for the most part, while we were fully supportive and obviously involved in electing people to office, as a Christian community, we weren't active in supporting them once they got into office. Yeah. Um, you know, we'd pound the signs, give the monies, and then every time they do something that um, didn't quite meet the standards, well, they abandoned us and yeah. all the rest. And the reality is MPs, once they get there, are, are totally dominant. You know, they have no time to think. They're handed talking points. They're handed. And there was no Christian think tank. There was no one who was providing the sort of information and, and thoughts and arguments and advanced thinking that was there. And that's really where the seeds of uh, what is now CARDIS, at that time the Work Research Foundation. Um, I had um, I was working with the Christian Labor Association of Canada. We had a small think tank at the side called Work Research Foundation, which was not staffed, did a conference a year and the occasional book. Yeah. And um, yeah, we, we turned that into a sustainable business plan. And here we are 22 years later with um, over 40 employees and, um, and a staff of a little over $6 million. So we can say the Lord's blessed us. Yeah, that's remarkable. Well, congratulations on the success. Thank you. 
That's uh, yeah. Do you want to take us a bit through the last yeah twenty years? I guess like that's so it comes from this this genesis, this idea of we need to support Christian politicians who get elected. They need these policies. They need the support. Um, how do you grow something like that? How do you make it financially stable? Yeah. So one of the things that's I think distinctive about when you start talking about the Christian political principles that we advocate, one of the ad- things that we advocate, which makes us quite different than many other political parties, is we don't think government is the answer to everything. Yeah. We actually believe in subsidiarity, to use the old Catholic term, or sphere sovereignty, to use the uh, the reformed term. We actually believe that what we need to do is equip not just political leaders, but leaders in all spheres, because part of the problem is the vacuum because of other institutions not doing their job, that politics politics and politicians are stepping in. So one of the things that right from day one makes Carter's very different than every other think tank is we're not just a policy shop. We are not a traditional think tank that only does papers that are focused at politicians. Uh, We view our audience as all leaders, uh, regardless, and that includes leaders in the home, leaders in the family. Um, You know, Comment Magazine, on the one hand, is a journal that talks about public theology in the the common square, but it's read by a lot of moms. Yeah. Um, And, you know, if you shape the heart of the hearts of the next generation, you're actually having a huge political impact. So um, we began right from, right, uh, looking at, you know, a number of core principles that drove. Um, the original memo I wrote uh, regarding creating Cardis said that what we wanted to do was create a think tank that was public. And by that, what we meant was we are not simply there targeting our materials to people who agree with us. Yep. Right from day one, our most important metrics have been engaging those who disagree. Uh, when we can shape the public conversation, even if you disagree with us, you've engaged the argument. Yeah. Um, so we want to be public. We want to be credible. Um, sometimes Christians have put the best arguments forward, but have discredited the arguments by the way they've put them forward. Mm. Um, our work needs to be at the standard of the absolute best, not only because that's going to be more effective, but frankly, because Christian require excellence. Our God is a God of perfection. He's a God of excellence and substandard work reflects poorly. Yes. Even on the arguments themselves. And finally, Christian was fairly unique. We had significant discussion and debate about this. We were public. Both of us um, come from, um, you know, reformed, reformed background. Yep. Uh, we very consciously, right from the beginning, did not set forward a statement of faith except the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. Um, okay. What we have done is we also, right from the beginning, began to pursue prominent Roman Catholics to join us in our venture. So here are two Reformed guys starting a think tank. Yeah. And um, we started chasing Father Raymond D'Souza, who's writing in the National Post and— oh. um, and eventually, um, actually, there was another organization at that time, the Center for Cultural Renewal, which actually merged into us in 2010. Okay. And um, and today, of our 40 staff, uh, we probably have about 15 denominations, uh, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and, um, and Protestant. Um, what's interesting is pretty well everybody is on the conservative side of their denominations. We we make very clear we don't have we believe we take the Apostles' Creed seriously. Um, 
I'm not, I'm wide open to a debate about the politics of whatever issue you want. And actually, there are some good arguments that come from the Christian left as well as the Christian right, and we'll engage them both, and we'll publish them both. I don't think that right or left are anointed as particularly Christian, even though I I ran for the Canadian Alliance. I'm you know, there's no way to describe my political philosophy without, if you're going to use the terms, I'm I'm center right. Sure. Yeah. Um, but um, there's lots of room for debate, and we'll have that debate even within Cardis. There's no mm-hmm. room for questioning the fact of the virgin birth or whether or not um, Jesus uh, rose from the dead. Yeah. Um, you can't call yourself Christian if you don't. That. So we've we've had a very orthodox, fundamental understanding of the Apostles' Creed. And within our staff and board, uh, that is a requirement. Then, as we move out, we'll we have we engage. We have a multi faith panel. We engage in people from a wide variety, and there's no faith test mm-hmm. at all. Um, we're committed to being very open about our convictions, about yep. two thousand years of Christian social thought and the wisdom it has to share in the public square, and then applying them to the issues of the day. Okay. Has that been effective uh, when you bring in leaders from other uh, Christian traditions in gaining the attention and, and hopefully respect of their various constituencies? We, we still, I would say, are disproportionately reformed yeah. in our um, in our support, but we have broad support from evangelicals, Catholics, um, right across the board, as well as there are a good number of people who wouldn't necessarily describe themselves as faithful, first of all, but who recognize and value some of the things that we do and are willing to write some check. They are a minority. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. And so you talked about having a public face. Um, how much of Curtis's work is educating the public and giving them uh, policy to think about? And how much of it is directly lobbying and educating politicians and decision makers? Well, we are a registered charity, so technically we don't lobby. We okay. educate. Sure. Yeah. Um, the line between that um, is is sometimes a vague one, and but there are legal definitions and all of the rest, and we're very careful. Okay. We've been audited numerous times by CRA. And one of the things when the auditor comes, um, we sit down and uh, we have a discussion fairly early and saying, here's our understanding of the line between lobbying and um, lobbying and and educating. Um, If that line, if the speed limit's 100, you're going to find a lot of stuff between 92 and 98 here. But we are very, very conscious of those rules and consider it part of our Christian witness and testimony to follow them. So uh, we're very careful in that regard. I would say, you know, the the notion of a think tank isn't necessarily familiar to people. What we do is is research. Mm -hmm. Um, Really, there are three products that a think tank produces. Number one is data. So we collect data that others don't think is important collecting. So, for example, on our education file, since 2011, we have on six occasions surveyed three times in Canada, three times the United States, graduates of education, emphasizing the graduates of Christian schools. So it's 23 to 39-year-olds. And we have taken a look at in their adult life, when it comes to their career, when it comes to academic achievement, cultural engagement, and spiritual formation, Is there any difference in their adult life between the people who went to Christian school and the people who went to public school? Um, So we collect data that doesn't exist, and we probably have the world's largest data set now in graduates of Christian education. 
And we did this in partnership with the University of Notre Dame, working with Baylor right now in terms of the next iteration of that. We worked with the University of Arkansas. It is widely respected. It's quoted in all of the academic journals. Harvard just wanted to do a major slam job on homeschoolers and the data they had to, to deal with was our data. Mm-hmm. And so you have this big Harvard paper trying to debunk our data yeah, um, because it stands in the road of them taking the slam job that they were trying to make in, in terms of homeschoolers. So yeah. that's, and we do that, our work with the Angus Reed Institute, we've done, um, we've been done the better part of a million dollars worth of polling in terms of religion in Canada, in terms of education. Um, so we collect data that otherwise doesn't exist. The second thing we do is create arguments. And on all of these, a lot of our political discourse is tired talking points that both sides have. We're trying to create new arguments about some new issues um, that hopefully will have some resonance with the public. And when we engage with those who disagree with us, um, you know, someone asked me the other day in terms of what's success for Cardis? And, you know, is it policy X or this what? At the end of the day, Neither a think tank nor an individual politician can um, can claim credit, even when a change comes. It's, no one of us does it. It's a yeah. whole pile of things coming together. And frankly, given where Canadian society is at, I'm relatively pessimistic of seeing that many changes that I'm going to be all that excited about in the foreseeable future. Because most Canadians don't agree with me on most stuff. I'm yeah. in the minority and we live in a democracy. I view success when every major argument, uh, political issue that comes forward, the people have to contend with the arguments from 2,000 years of Christian social thought as they're applied to that issue, and that we have the best data to support it. Yeah. If we still lose, we still lose. That's not in my hands. Mm -hmm. But I think we do have the ability and the responsibility to put forward those arguments creatively and to make arguments in the context of the common good that's based on the truths that we know are truths based on what God has revealed in creation as well as in through his revealed word. Yeah. So um, so in terms of success, or in terms of our work, we do data, we create arguments. And third and probably the most significant thing we do is networking. We, um, I think this year we're going to hold about 45 events at our office in Ottawa. Uh, we bring together people um, in terms of panel discussions on you name the topics. We cover them all. Uh, we had one on uh, a book about sex not long ago uh, with a Washington Post columnist in terms of what makes good sex. And the highlight is the modern notion of good sex is anything that is consented to is okay. Yeah. So consent became the norm for good sex, but that's very unsatisfying. Yeah. We have a whole generation. We have tons of data. We just have to follow the science. But that's not really what works. And actually, when we turn the discussion around, maybe Scripture has some more significant things besides consent mm-hmm. to tell us about what constitutes good sex. Now, if you're a think tank and you're used to dealing with boring subjects, titles like that help bring you in an <laughs> spice audience. Spice it up a bit, yeah. <laughs> it, it spices it up a bit. But really, it's getting, you know, we, we, we've talked about everything in terms of the vices from lust to our work on payday loans, talking about excessive interest rates and usury. Yeah. Um, and when people say, well, what does, what does payday loans have to do with Bible? Well, you know, go, go look up your concordance. Go look up usury. Yeah. Uh, the Bible has some things to say about this, and our society would do well to heed them. Yeah, it's important. So when you guys are doing all of your education um, and, and the networking and whatnot, too, 
and you have to decide which issues to take on, which data to collect, which policies to to pursue. How is that process done? Is it a discussion on the inside of Cardis? Is it more so top down from from yourself and other leaders at Cardis, or is it more of a grassroots like what's in the air? What should we what should we investigate? All of the above. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So we actually, um, in addition to our 40 staff, we have about 30 senior fellows. By and large, these are Christian academics. If you hop on our website, you'll yep. see they're mostly at universities, academics who are leaders in their own field. Yep. Um, we once a year do what we call a cultural intelligence survey. So we survey all of our board, all of our staff, all of our senior fellows, there's about 75. And we, tell, we ask them, what are the five most important issues that are emerging? And in your own field and at large, and, you know, give us the links to the most significant articles that you've read. So, you know, we've been struggling about issues like, for instance, transhumanism, artificial intelligence. Stanford is working on uh, the possibility of brain transplants. That's Uh, huge. um, Now, I wasn't. I was scarcely bored when the first heart transplant took place in 1967. But I remember, I'm I'm old enough to remember the debates within the church community as to whether or not it was ethical for a Christian yeah. to have a heart transplant. Is there a lot of Christian discussion around AI and around the I future? Don't, like, I don't see that much I, discussion. Neither do I. I would like to talk about it on this podcast, but there's not um, many people doing it. I was invited a couple of years ago. Moses Zneimer, uh, the head of City TV and a number of television, holds a, an annual, um, it's called Idea City. Yeah, uh, it's it. basically a series of TED Talks. And yeah. I was invited a couple of years ago to give the talk on religion. Okay. And the guy who gave the talk just before me was someone who had was working for some years, and basically there was this lady who came in, an African-American lady, and she had for seven or eight years, every year, every week, every Friday, she came in, and she downloaded all of her thoughts onto this computer. And he was creating the artificial intelligence, so now you could have a conversation with the computer, and you could have a conversation with her. And it wouldn't regurgitate back what she had said, it would analyze what she said and she it would predict her answers. She would just say what she's thinking, they would write that exactly. down? Exactly, it okay. would transcribe. And, yeah. and the idea is that we should be able to record, uh, they want to get this artificial intelligence to the point where you can record someone and then when they're gone 50 years ago, their grandkids can have a conversation with them. Yeah, that's wild. And I saw that, like, it was still, you know, relatively elementary, but they were asking this computer questions that she had and giving answers that were not transcriptions of previous answers. It wasn't just the fact that they were indexing to what she said. Yeah. It was analyzing what she was saying. And then she was there as well. I saw this interview. This is what's going on right now in terms of that. So, you know, I, I think there are huge issues uh, when it comes. That's that not could- an area. So. Back to your question quickly. Yeah. How do we choose? Yeah. Number one, we we canvas widely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously we have within our own staff, um, we have 40 people, about half of whom have masters or PhDs who are involved every day in public life. So full-time thinkers. They're full-time. There's a lot of... Yeah. Um, I really think there are three questions when it comes to our core. We have seven core subject areas that we dig into right now, and they've changed a bit over time. 
And um, one, is there a, lo- a significant cultural question that emerges? And, you know, so we have family. Well, I don't need to spend much time with this audience about the significant cultural questions about the state of the family um, that's there. So family, education, health, religious freedom, um, communities. We also have, as time has gone, we have found ourselves within the various major spheres of society almost having one per sphere. But that actually is almost accidental rather than to say a conscious thing. We started with there's a major question that's there. Secondly, um, is there, do we have access to thinking that has something unique to say on this question? We have not, it's one of the reasons we have not immediately jumped in on, you know, the life questions. Because when we started in 2000, there were already significant organizations out there doing issue on, on, um, you know, like the, the pro-life sort of things. Yeah. There's no questioning if you look at our website and you can see various things that we've done in terms of where we stand, but that has not been an issue because yeah. there are others doing that already. Yeah. So we have, do we have something unique to say that we can, you know, some years ago I was invited, um, someone came with, with, you know, giving, uh, offering six figures for a couple of years in terms of the justice system. And this was during the Harper years. This person was concerned that the Harper government was adopting sort of a throwaway, you know, put him in jail, throw away the key um, yeah, approach right. and said, I don't think this is a very Christian approach. Uh, you guys need to have Cardish justice and I'll give you X dollars. And he mentioned a six figure amount for a couple of years if you can start this program. Um Usually we have to go find the money. So it's, um, it was very, the reality is, as I began to try to frame this program and looked around, um, prison fellowship and some of the legacy, you know, and uh, Charles Colson and some of the work that was being done there, they had done some significant work on restorative justice and all the rest. Yeah. Everybody that I talked to either was in the traditional camp or already was involved in that. And we determined after a few months, you know what, we could take this money, but it really wouldn't be integrity to do so because we're not probably going to be able to do much more right now. We don't have an idea right now that they're not already pursuing. So mm-hmm. we we declined. Yeah. Um, so can we make a difference? Do yeah. we have something unique that's not there not yeah. just in terms of organizations, but in terms of ideas that are rooted in our 2,000 years of Christian social thought. And then the final one is obviously the resources. Uh, frankly, if you're going to be serious about a program, you need a full-time director who has a master's PhD level sort of expertise. Uh, you need advisors, and then you need budgets. In addition to that full-time salary, you need budgets to go do the research and to go hold a few events and that. So frankly, unless you can find support for a program of several hundred thousand dollars per year, you can't really do a program that, um, that is there. So those are sort of the three questions that, that work themselves through. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you give folks kind of a how the sausage is made sort of view on why uh, think tanks matter and how their policies get put into law. Like, so, so politicians, like you mentioned earlier, they don't have a lot of time when they're in office. So if, I mean, it's hard to probably have uh, too many successes given where the culture's at these days, but just even just viewing the current liberal government in Ottawa, how well, does policy actually get enacted? Where do the ideas come from? Well, let me, let, me, let me actually just give you a very concrete thing that I've been working. The very first paper I wrote... Yeah. Um, I was working in labor relations at the time, 
And I was very concerned about public tendering that said union only. That is annoying. Yeah. And my argument, you know, the lack of open competition yeah. uh, was unjust and unfair. I mean, it was a, it's a justice matter. Yeah. As well as economics, and there's lots of arguments. I wrote um, I wrote an original paper about job targeting. I, I, I've written three major papers over the years. Um, in 2010, Brian Dykema took over that file. He, we created a, a construction competitive index. We've done about 15 studies on this over the years. The result of that, though, is in Alberta in 2006, job targeting programs, I won't bore your audience with all the particulars of exactly how that works, but those in construction, the job targeting programs became illegal in Alberta in 2006. Curtis Work Research Foundation was the only one to have done any work, and all of our stuff was cited. It went to every M. Bill 68 in Ontario that the Ford government passed in 2019, I believe, again, same thing. Uh, it was based on our, our work over the course of two decades. Now, I twice spoke to the Canadian Club or the Economic Club and the Canadian Club on that. I've written extensively on it. We've been hammering that. The irony was it wasn't really until the Ontario Chamber of Commerce picked up some of our work and really championed it as one of their election priorities yeah. that it moved to the front of the line. Yeah. But all the all the material that was used by the advocates was all stuff that Cardis had produced yep. over that period of time. Okay. So the one thing you need is patience. Yep. Uh, we, we, you know, think tank work happens in decades. Yep. Um, we're doing work on government's addiction to gambling, and um, we've done a major paper on the fact. And ironically, it's conservative governments that are leading the charge. Yeah, yeah. It used to be in the 70s when you had some of these lottos and all the rest that what was happening was that was there for, you know, playgrounds or for an MRI machine or whatever it was in these days. These days, governments are putting gambling revenue into general revenue and they're spending more on advertising than they are on in terms of the problems of gambling. Oh, yeah. It's huge. Uh, it's sports bettings it, everywhere. And, yeah. you know, just the sports betting is only the latest manifestation of it, yeah. but you can't watch uh, a no. sporting event without being irritated to the nth degree yeah. on all of these stupid ads. Yeah. Um, and this is coming by and large from the conservative side of the spectrum because it's, it's a free market. It's, it's, a, it's a free way of getting some tax re- yeah. or some revenues. And so we've done significant work on ga- gambling. I uh, payday loans is another file. On these files, what we actually take some pride in is that this this work has been cited in various legislatures across the country by individuals of every party. The NDP yeah. have quoted us, the Green have quoted us, the Liberals have quoted us, Conservatives have quoted us. That said, it's not having a particular favorable effect yet, but at the end of the day, you have to work to change the culture and make the arguments, and then someone will champion it at some point. And when they are ready to champion it, we've got the work that's been that has been done. Yeah. How have you managed to build up a nonpartisan reputation over the years? Because you guys, like you said, you do get quoted across the aisle. We live in a time where that's increasingly difficult to do. How have you managed to do that? Um, one one of our core principles. Um, so 
I talked about credible Christian and um, public as sort of that first, and that has continued. But as we go every few years, you know, we've got a strategic plan, and every couple of years you go through that. One of our principles that we've articulated over the years and is up near the top of the current in our current is about hospitality. And um, so you take our, you know, when we moved to Ottawa and opened an office in 2016, we could have gone a little further away. We actually rented an office that's three doors down from Parliament. Um, it's for those who know Ottawa, it's right across, right across the Chateau Laurier. I look out of my window at the prime minister's office and at the Senate building and at the Cenotaph, and there's a big Cardiff sign on the outside. We clearly could have rented something a few blocks away for considerably less than we're paying for what there's, but we felt it was a, it was a strategic decision to be there and to put a big sign there. One, because we wanted to make the statement that faith is at the major intersection of public life. Yep. It doesn't belong on the margins. Yep. It belongs on the main street. Cardus, by the way, is a lot in the origins of Cardus. It's sort of like the Greek Agora, which was a square. The Cardo Maximus in an ancient Roman city was the major north-south road on which all the institutions of society were there. Yeah. So we're there in the middle. Secondly, I'll just take a couple of weeks ago, um, we did uh, the uh, the Liberals in their last um, election platform talked about making pregnancy care centers, um, not uh, removing charitable status. status from them. What we did is we organized an event around this, and I invited an environmentalist who has been having troubles with the um, with CRA since the Harper years a very left-wing environmentalist, well-known for that. I invited a Muslim who has been in trouble with CRA because they have been accusing, he claims falsely, of the connections overseas, whereas they say they're actually helping Muslim refugees. Right. I invited someone from Imagine Canada, which is the umbrella group for all charities in Canada, as well as someone from Pregnancy Care Canada. We had a panel discussion at our office. We had in the audience half a dozen MPs, the senator involved, the the major people from CRA involved in policy, as well as a a Supreme Court justice was sitting in the audience. Um, We had a conversation in which this group, which probably agreed on absolutely nothing else except this one point, that government should not get involved in politicizing charities. And that when the liberal government does it today to a charity that they don't like, a conservative government tomorrow is going to do it to a different set of charities that they don't like. And the minute we have that as the framework within which charities operate, the entire concept of charity and the infrastructure is going to crumble. And they all made that point and they agreed Mm -hmm. on that point. So how do you do it? Number one, you focus on the issue. And number two, you focus on being very civil being very respectful. Even in our, I write a weekly newsletter. I take great pains to not build straw men. If I'm going to criticize someone, I'm going to take their very best argument that they would make. Um, And again, communicate in that sense, something of a Christian tone and hospitality. And I think, you know, we receive lots of feedback along the way, also in Ottawa. And I think we are known for our hospitality and for the civility with which we seek to engage conversations, even though there are rank and, you know, two weeks later, we we released a paper on the middle class in Canada, and we had 
an economist from QP, who's an open Marxist. We had a University of Toronto professor who's been fighting with us on, been very pro-daycare. We've been the leading uh, critic of the daycare stuff. We've been going at each other on Twitter over the last year. But we invited her, along with our the, Sean Spear and Renzo Nauta, the author of the papers uh, on our side. And we had probably the most substantive discussion about economics and its impact on working people that I have heard in Canada. And it was a two-hour discussion. And it was robust. They didn't agree. But it was a very profitable discussion. People can hop on our website and find the YouTube uh, to that. Um, take two hours, and, and you'll find a very civil, respectful, honest discussion. And I think you that's how you build bridges and start to make a, a positive contribution in many ways. For sure. Well, we'll link that below. What uh, Do you want to go into that a little bit about the working class? What was some of their findings there? Well, it's very interesting because there, there's a big debate even politically about the working class. So historically, it's always been thought the working class belonged to the NDP. Yeah. Um, Doug Ford, um, among others in Ontario, um, managed to get the support of various private sector unions for the Conservatives in this mm -hmm. last election. Yeah. Um, this deals with a debate that's been going on in policy circles uh, for a number of times. Actually, my colleague Brian Dykema was invited to speak to the National Conservatism Conference in Florida in the U.S. earlier this year mm. on this, given some of our work. Um, so to some extent, we've been involved even in, in leading some of the writing about this. We just released a paper that was very data-driven. And what it highlighted is ordinarily when people think working class, they think manufacturing and construction. Yeah. which were the backbone of those jobs. The reality is today, statistically, the working class are immigrant women who are working in retail in the service industry. When you actually take a look at the dollars in terms of, you know, do the math in terms of who's in the middle and where it is at, we actually, there there is... There is a significant gap between who most people think the working class are and who actually are there and the issues that confront them. And so, you know, daycare and some of these other issues factor into that whole, obviously, there's a big difference between construction workers in northern Ontario yeah. being the working class or... Um, or women working in an industrial setting. Is it just no post-secondary and then a certain dollar range? Well, no, we, um, we defined working class as a job that does not require. So we didn't ask whether the person had a post-secondary. No, we said, does the job require yeah. a uh, post-secondary? So if you had the job and was, there was no post-secondary uh, requirement at all and a few other criterias and then... And then we started sub did the math of the total workforce and started to take a look at its various shapes. Yeah. And it looks very different than most people assume it would. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh hmm, that's interesting. And I guess like why does it matter? Like that some people might critique that as like, oh, that's more of a, a communist approach to like looking at society and classes and whatnot. I think it matters significantly, even from a, you know, the question, what is a just wage? Sure. Um, you know, if we're going to take, you can take a pure capitalist approach and you can say a just wage is whatever the market will bring. Yep. Um, okay. What happens when a just wage is such that, you know, the hockey stars and the movie stars get all the money and the average person isn't even able to support a family? 
Um, I look at it. I don't think justice is defined by the market. Um, I actually think justice is defined by the scriptures. And it starts with the fact that every person is a mago dei, is an image bearer of God. So there's a certain dignity and worth. Yeah. Now, how much, um, you know, a few years ago, one of the papal encyclicals, uh, you know, talked in Latin about charity and justice. Um, how much of our economy do we want to build around the fact in which people have to rely on charity in order to eat? Um, you know, th there are lots of biblical principles that we start bringing in. When the Bible, you know, when in Malachi, uh, the people of Israel are being condemned in terms of their unfaithfulness, the list of sins that he lists are, you know, adultery and idol worship and those who don't pay fair wages and this, it's right in the middle of there. Yeah. So what is justice? What is a fair wage? That isn't, I, I think most people would agree that you can't just say whatever the market will bear, that there are other norms and standards that enter into it. Now, I am, that said, I'm a right of center guy. I'm a market economy guy. But being yeah. a, being in favor of a market economy is not necessarily being in favor of a market society. Well, we also don't have a free market. That would be the and other. We don't have an entirely. But even if we had an entirely free market, the results yeah. may be a bit more Dickensian than we wish they were, right? It could be. Yeah, that's true. So then it's a matter of, okay, how is that money redistributed? There and is an who? element of and, and what are the what are the principles that go yeah. into that? Yeah. And um, well, that would be subsidiary, and that would be exactly. sovereign. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's interesting. So I know you guys have done some work on uh, the working class, but also you've been doing a bunch of research into faith in public life. I know you have some new stats coming out about that. I think it should be out by the time this episode drops. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So. Just actually speaking, why faith uh, think tanks in Canada and the origins. One of the things that is there in the United States, the Pew Forum does very regular polling in terms of faith and all dimensions yep. of faith. In Canada, uh, there are some organizations, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, a few academics have done some work, Reg Bibby, most prominent among them. Um, but really, there was no systematic collection. Mm -hmm. So in 2017, uh, it was going to be Canada's 150th birthday. So we went to the federal government at the time, and we said we would like, as part of the Canadian the 150th birthday party, we think it's important for us to collect data about the contribution that faith communities have made to public life in Canada. We think it's an untold story. Um, they said no. <laughs> um, so we went and we managed to raise the money anyway. And since then, we built a relationship with Angus Reid. Um, Ang the Angus Reid um, polling company is um, not only one of Canada's leading polling companies, there actually is a gentleman named Angus Reid. Yes. And um, Angus is a fairly devout Catholic and was quite interested in the subject. And so since 2017, we've developed a partnership in which um, he contributes some money and we contribute some money and we uh, co-direct a, um, a, 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 an aspect of polling in Canada. So ordinarily, the way people have gone is they've used church attendance as a proxy for secularism. And I'm sure you've been to some presentation as well yeah. where the second or third slide is, you see the graph, 1950, there it is, boom, yeah, and it goes yeah. down. And 
sad. I, sad and, yeah. and, and a, a long one. Yes. When it comes to public life, I wasn't really satisfied that that was a total valid way. I, I agree on the significance of sure. that, but there are a bunch of things. So what we did is we ask in every one of our polls, and we've done this 13 times now since 2007, 17, sorry, over five years. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in an afterlife? Yeah. Have you had a religious experience or an encounter with God? Hmm. Do you educate your children according to a religious code? Do you pray? Do you read a sacred text and do you attend a place of worship? If you do six or seven of those things, we call you very religious. Okay. That's 16% of the population. Okay. If you do zero or one of those things, we call you irreligious. It's 23% of the population. Um, if you draw it down the middle, you basically have 35% that do at least um, three or four of those. Um and sorry, four or five of those four somewhere four in the middle. or more. Yep. Okay. Is thirty five percent. Uh, three or less is sixty five percent of the population. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, most of us grew up thinking that our neighbors were lapsed Christians. That you know they somehow used to go to church and now their families abandoned that. The reality is for a good portion of the, of the public, they've never been Christian at all. They, 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 they don't even have the first clue. We're about actually to go into the poll, do, into the field, and we'll release this just before Christmas in terms of Canadians' literacy with the Bible. Do they know any of the books of the Bible? Oh boy, um, <laughs> not much, probably. Not well. We'll find. We'll find we'll out. We'll find out. However, there are a couple of very interesting things in all of this. If you are born outside of Canada you are twice as likely to be in the religiously committed group as if you than if you're born inside of Canada. So the immigrant communities to Canada are way more religious than people born and raised. Okay. I wrote a piece on this a few weeks ago in terms of Canada's um, bringing in 500,000 new immigrants. Yeah. Some Christians are very concerned about this, saying, oh, we're going to lose our heritage and everything else. Yeah. If you asked me at a very human level, and I understand all the risks that are there, I will put my lot in with the religious people as opposed to this white secularists who were born and raised in Canada. 100%. Um, ironically, we also have asked questions about, do you think the presence of these faith groups, and we ask about eight different groups, Muslim, Hindu, Christian, Catholic, evangelical, do you think they're a net benefit or damaging to society? What's ironic is that those who are religious, regardless if they're Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, and that, think positively of every other religion. Hmm. Good to know. However, as you move on those four things, by the time we get to the non-religious group, yeah. they're negative on every religion. Yeah, that makes sense. So... Another fascinating thing that I find um, is that those 18 to 34 are one-third more likely to be going to church. Or synagogue or mosque. Or synagogue or, yeah. or mosque. However, yeah. let's let's be actually very clear in terms of the numbers. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the Stats Canada data that came out a few weeks ago confirms this. Yeah. Basically, 
if you ask people to identify themselves, now, there's a lot of confusion that comes out of religion, and we've introduced some confusion by our own to say, okay, we're going to do this index of seven, and if you do. Sure. Um, so is it what you call yourself, the box you check? Is it your behavior? We measure behavior. Yeah. But if you go in terms of religious identity, on our polls as well as Stats Canada confirms, basically the largest group will be Catholic. Just over 30% is going to say they're Catholic. High 20s are going to say they're nothing. Then you have 18% that say they're Protestant. You have about 8% that say they're evangelical. Now, it depends on how the categories are offered on the different polls. They're slightly different. So we drew, we provide people the choice to check their own box, Protestant, and make the distinction between Protestant and evangelicals. Right. Then you get down, um, you know, Muslims are less than 5% of the population as a whole. Um, you know, Jews are one point something, um, Hindu. So you have 5% Muslim, and then you have basically every other faith is 3% or less. So even today, with all of the immigration in that, Canada is 90%. Of those who identify with a faith, yeah, we are, I, I believe if you add up all the non-Christian faiths, they add up to about 12%. Okay. So the twelve percent of all non-Christian faiths, what was the there's religious 20, or non? There's twenty-three percent, or sorry, high twenties that would or say nuns. nothing. Yeah, and the rest would advert would would pick a Christian, Christian box of one sort or another. Okay, interesting. I would have thought maybe Hindu would be higher than Muslim. No, no Muslim like Muslim is the highest, and they just because when we started this a couple of years ago, they were at like three point nine. They're they're now just shy of five. Okay, does StatsCan track birth rate by religion? Uh, like, is it is it new people coming here of faith in those various faiths, or is it like second generation? We, we have we, you have both. You ask people what they are, and then we're able to measure those who are born in Canada, those who are first generation, second generation. Right. Second okay. Generation. Yeah. 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 Okay. Interesting. We got to tell the Conservative Party that. that yeah. uh, well, I actually, but you talk about the implications of this stuff. Yeah. Politically, this is huge. It's massive. Yeah. Okay. For for social conservatives. Mm -hmm. They need to find their allies. If Christian social conservatives, if they're going to make progress in Canada, are going to do so because becoming allied with social conservatives of various religious groups. Yeah. That's the, that's the common ground that's yeah. there. But, you know, for many are, you know, the, the traditional attitudes towards immigration, particularly non-Caucasian immigration, mm -hmm. you know, it's, oh, we're going to lose our Christian heritage. Well, maybe, maybe some of these non-Christian groups are going to help us keep our Christian heritage. Yeah, it's basically if you frame it as you have people who are religious and people who are not religious, and the state is largely, maybe I'm wrong, but largely led by people who are non-religious. And hostile to religion and, and to see religion. it as a damaging thing. Right, so they want to limit it. If you if you team up with those who are immigrating to this country and yeah. who are religious, at least you can all fight for the common cause of freedom of religion. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. That's, uh, well, we'll have to look for that data come out. That's interesting. And encouraging too, honestly. Well, it, it puts sometimes we get pretty down, right? In terms yeah. of you know, the Christian heritage, which we inherited in this country. We, you know, our forefathers came, we yeah. had this, it's all, you know, oh no, it's all going terrible and everything else. And I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. There's lots that's going, you know, the the fact that medical assistance and dying came in. And, uh, you know, with, with, with the Carter case and in a couple of years where the world, world's most liberal yeah. um, 
constituency as it relates to that. And the consequences of that are huge on the healthcare system as a whole. It's a terrible indictment of our culture. Um, let's not let's not sugarcoat the many things that are going wrong. Mm-hmm. However, um, you don't necessarily get very far by just saying, "Oh, it's all bad. It's all bad. It's all bad." And mm-hmm. there are many um, shoots of light that um, are coming through um, that I think we can be quite encouraged by. Yeah, oh, I like it when the guest makes his own uh, transitions. That's good. <laughs> How about we talk about made for a bit? I know you guys have done a bunch of work on that. Obviously, yeah, we're in a, a not great situation for that. We've kind of lost the legal battle. Is there any uh, yeah, rays of sunshine, any positivity in that front? Well, we are about, when we're recording this, it's tomorrow. So by the time people are watching it, they can hop on our website and see the announcement that we did make. Okay. That we, uh, you asked about new programs. Yeah. I have uh, just succeeded in raising a couple hundred thousand dollars for us to hire a full-time researcher in this area. Um, so, uh, the job posting is up and, um, if anybody knows of who the right person is, we would love to uh, see that person. One of the things that we intend to focus on, and, you know, I mentioned the fact that when we go into a new area, we look at gaps Mm -hmm. in the research by and large made has been sold to the public on the fact that it's not, you don't need to worry about it. If you're, if you're pro-life, you don't need to worry about it. You don't have to have made if you don't want to. It's, it's a right for an individual and it's between them and their doctor. Yeah. One of the things that we want to document is the fact that it's not just between them and their doctor. It impacts the whole health system. Now, we've seen some of this in recent in terms of the inadequacy of palliative care and of social yeah. services and people saying, wait a minute. Um, I, you know, yes, I have a right to social services. It's going to be 14 years that I have to live in this pain. I can, I'm not going to live with this pain, so I'm going to die. Uh, I prefer to, to, to have medical assistance and dying. So it, it's exposing various gaps yep. in our social system. And frankly, COVID and our long-term care has cast a light on our long-term care system and some of the very real problems that are there. So we intend to take a look at some of the issues about social isolation, about what it means to age and die well. Yep. But we particularly want to take a look. And let me, and I want to caution, we haven't done the research we're proposing, but, you know, you don't do research unless you have a hunch you're going to find something. Sure. Um. Right now in Ontario, if I understand the stats correctly, in 2022, 3% of family doctors have indicated the fact that they're going to retire. Many of them retiring early. Yep. Um, We have a shortage of family doctors already. Every doctor that retires is 2,400 patients that don't have a doctor. So we are going to have a – you thought it was hard getting a family doctor last year? Yeah. It's going to be way harder. I, I don't have one. It's going to be way harder next year. Yeah. Now, anecdotally, yeah. from dozens of people I've interviewed, yeah. they're telling me that a good number of those who are retired, it's not the only cause by any means, it's not 3% that are doing this, but there is a significant number who are saying, wait a minute, I got into healthcare, the Hippocratic Oath of healing people, and now I'm forced to refer, to become involved with, to counsel in the context I made, and that violates my conscience, and I don't want to do it. I'm going to retire rather than doing that. Yeah. Well, now, is made still that decision just between the individual and the patient? Or is the consequence of those cumulative decisions having the structural effect of having thousands of people not having a family doctor and having worse health outcomes? 
Because we know that if you have a family doctor, you have way better health comes, outcomes yeah. than if you don't. Speaking of health outcomes, um, again, a hunch. Don't know that this is true. What yeah. I do know that is in the field of education, Dr. Catherine Powellock, who is at the Catholic University of America and one of our senior fellows, wrote a paper for, for us in which what we looked at is tens of thousands of student records in the United States. We looked at the student's background. And we looked at their math marks. And we discovered the fact, and we demonstrated the fact, that when there is consistency when between the values of the home and the context in which the education was delivered, the math marks go up. So okay. Catholic students get better math marks in Catholic schools than they do in public schools. Yep, right. Jewish students follow the... Yep, yep. If that's true in education... <clears throat> Is it true in healthcare? My guess is everybody I talk to says, my guess is yes. Yeah. So if that's true, and if we can find documentation, and we have reasons to believe we know where some of the where where to pull some of this data from, we're gonna, you know, one of the first tasks I see this researcher doing is we're we're gonna dig into the databases and we're gonna see whether or not we can demonstrate there are positive health outcomes. When there is an alignment and trust between the patient and the deliverer of healthcare. Mm-hmm. If that's true, we now can make the scientific common good argument that you want to improve health co- outcomes in Canada. Well, who, who doesn't? Yeah. Well, actually, what you need is a pluralistic system in which religious institutions have long term care homes and conscience protections. Homes, conscience protection. Yeah. Well, you can just, we just need alignment of values. And what we need is those institutions to hold their values. And part of our work in preparing for this, we've networked 68 faith-based institutions um, looking at some of these issues and saying, okay, how do we ensure those protections are there? And making sure that Catholic hospitals are really Catholic hospitals when it comes to their own policies and reformed institutions and Mennonite and Jewish and all, all of the others. But we can now make the argument. We don't even have to talk necessarily about MAID. We can talk about health outcomes. Yeah. Deliver better health outcomes. Yeah. Have pluralism in the delivery methods. Yeah. Have trust between patients and doctors. Now, all of a sudden, when you deliver that, what do we have? We have, let let me just, do you think that the indigenous community is going to have made? Not a chance. Not a chance. It totally violates them. They value their elders way too much. let's, let's be in favor of more indigenous homes. Yeah. And guess what? Made ain't going to happen there. Yeah. No, that's a way better sales pitch. Yeah, which which is what the politicians are are well, Which they is need. Uh, and the reality. Let's go back to our data. We yeah. are in the minority. Yeah. Only sixteen percent of us, or twelve percent of us, attended a place of worship yeah. in the last. Um, you know, about five percent uh, Catholic, about not quite a little less than that Protestant. Yeah, and one percent everybody else combined. Yeah. Um. You know, if, if, if we're looking for people who agree entirely with us and dot the I's and cross the T's, we're down to a couple percent of the population. Yeah. So we got to dig down deep in the data, <clears throat> make these public good cases. And then that is kind of the ticket to, we can't just assume that people are going to But agree. the irony is, and this is what's lost. Sometimes people say, okay, Ray, you're just being way too pragmatic. You should be principled and all the rest. My argument is these public good cases actually comes from digging into the scriptures. Mm. This is actually applying scriptural Loving principle. 
Yeah, loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor and the different spheres of society and subsidiary and sphere of sovereignty and making decisions at the local level as opposed to the national level. And we can start, and I'm not going to try to put a, draw a direct line between every policy and biblical principle, but I, I am more than ready to say this is the application of 2,000 years of Christian social thought. And when you throw away what God has revealed, yeah. in the, both in the way he created the world, yeah. as well as what he revealed to us in terms of how to live, you end up in a mess. When you follow those rules, well, yeah. you have a prosperous and thriving society. Yeah, it's also, he, he, his revelation comes in, in two forms, and we can dig into the data, which is discovering the world. Absolutely. We can also look at scripture, and we can come to the same conclusion. And that brings two sides to it. When we started the Cardis Education Survey, I visited um, most of the leaders of the school associations. And this was, a, we started in the U.S. So I was in the U.S. I was traveling around visiting. And the head of a major school association said, so you're going to collect this data. This is wonderful. Can't wait to see it. But if it's not favorable to Christian schools, are you going to go public? Huh. And I said, well, I said two things. I said, one, this gentleman was in his 60s, near retirement, spent his entire career in Christian education. I said, I'm pretty confident that there's going to be a lot in the data that is not everything is going to be wonderful, but there's a lot in the data that is there because what I have seen of faith-based schools, they do a pretty good job. So I'm not that worried about it. No. I said, and I said, if I'm not, I said, you've been spending your whole career there. Yeah. Either, you, you know. You tell me. <laughs> if... That wasn't the case. Wouldn't you want to be the first to know? Yeah, that's true. Um, even as a matter of integrity and conviction. And so, you know, we we have put things out that all aren't always perfectly favorable to, you know, faith and faith communities and everything else. But as a matter of integrity and as a matter of... We need to learn. We need to learn from yeah. it. And again, going back to what we said, our audience isn't just the politician. It's the leader of all of the different... Institutions yeah. of society. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of learning, let's do, uh, it wouldn't be a good political conversation if we didn't hit the COVID topic. <laughs> so can we do a bit of a post-mortem uh, now that I think it's done? Maybe we'll see. Um, on, yeah, a day, on a day when the public officer of health is recommending yeah, masks. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> maybe. Who knows? Okay. Well, it's been a few years. We've experienced this. Carter says, uh, you've written some pieces. Carter has been involved a bit. Um, do you want to, yeah, lay out Carter's involvement for the, for the audience, for the listeners. And then also just looking back on it too, what are your thoughts? Uh, what did governments get right broadly and, and what did they get wrong? And are we prepared for the next, uh, pandemic? Yeah. So let me let me just make uh, a, a couple of things. So when COVID came, I happened to be an elder and the chair of our local consistory. Uh, Unfortunate timing. <laughs> so um, uh, all of a sudden, I got involved in COVID in the way that many of our listeners got involved in COVID. And we had to make a decision in terms of when do you cancel church and what are the rules of church. And yeah. then as the months went on in terms of all the different stuff. And so I dealt with it at a very personal local level with my own congregation of which there was the full range of divided opinion um, that many, that many had. Um, we had, you know, early on, and I think by and large, the community was quite united early on when we didn't know, and there was a real risk. There was, so somewhere after a few months, 
the questions started coming and how far do how far do you go? Uh, we in our own congregation, um, you know, we did everything from four services a Sunday to uh, outdoor services. Um, I have a license to preach in our church. I've preached from the back of a pickup truck uh, with FM radio with everybody in their cars. Yep. Uh, we did it all um with a desire and and from relatively early on from the beginning of uh, 2021 on everyone in our congregation was able to attend twice a sunday yeah. um all the way through so that was at a local fairly early on i actually got a call from um, someone in uh, cardinal collins office whom i have worked with on a number of things and he says we're organizing a number of faith leaders to meet with the premier and um, so anyway, and there, there were a couple of other Reformed, uh, Carl Veldkamp and um, a Canadian Reformed elder was part of that process as well as, yeah. as, well as Reverend uh, Bowers. Yeah. Um, so 13 of us met on, a, I think we met three times, the premier as well as had regular interactions with their staff. Mm-hmm. Um, I was inv- They asked along the way in terms of some of the challenges that were there. So we did a webinar in which I had a cabinet minister as well as Sam Osterhoff and Will Bauma on explaining. So we were working behind the scenes with government and always trying to make the case in terms of the special case of, of worship that, okay. yes, we needed to respect public health. And obviously we didn't need to, we can't be a danger to people, but that worship was not just like a theater or a mall and it needed special consideration mm-hmm. and the importance of worship is there. In the context of Ontario, I actually think we did reasonably well. I didn't like every decision or the timing. In most cases, I thought they could have been made a month or two before they were actually made. But we were actively working behind the scenes trying to do that um, as best we could. When it came to uh, mask mandates, uh, CARDIS is or vaccine, sorry, vaccine mandates, uh, CARDIS has written uh, a paper in which essentially we're pro-vaccine but anti-mandate. Yeah. Uh, we encourage the vaccine, but if you're um, based on our evaluation of the science, but if you can't make the case through science and that, that someone should have it, um, largely because my understanding of the science says that the best, the beneficiary of me having, uh, I'm fully vaccinated, the benefit of me being vaccinated is to me, not to you. That's what I understand. You're at no, yeah. the fact whether I'm vaccinated or not should have no difference to you in terms of your concern, in terms of my risk. The fact the data seems pretty overwhelming to me that by virtue of being vaccinated, I um, I must if I get COVID and I've had it three times, uh, if I get COVID, I'm much likely less likely to end up in ICU. And thankfully, I haven't. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to be perfectly candid. I needed to get on an airplane because I have a bunch of employees in the United States. So my I, I could put it all at night. So I following the science. I was very pragmatic. Oh yeah. I, I needed many Canadians were. Yeah. I needed I needed to get onto an airplane um, along the way. So, in retrospect, um, it was interesting. I was uh, I was in the states, and um, a couple of months ago in Tennessee, yep. and uh, there as a tourist for an afternoon, and I came across somebody in one of these towns, and. Um, they uh, they said to me, "Oh, you're from Canada." She she had already described, and she was she had moved from Michigan to Tennessee because it was far more Bible based, and so she was in the Bible. She was wearing her faith on her sleeve, and she says, "Oh, you're from Canada. How are things there?" She says, "I hear, I hear, you know, it's a persecution for Christians." 
And I, uh, I said to her, I said, oh, how are things in Canada? I said, well, I said, things are as they always have been. I said, when God created the world, one of the jewels he created was Canada with the Rocky Mountains, with our vast meadows and picturesque. I said, have you ever seen pictures of Canada? So what a beautiful place it is. I said, it's a glorious part of God's creation. I said, or it wasn't that what you meant. No, 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 no. She says, Christians are being persecuted and vaccines and all the rest. I said, well, I said, I, ha I have a lot of differences with the government in terms of how they proceeded. I said, and I'm not ready, you know, I said, but I said, I understand the challenges that were there. I was involved. I said, but I said, I will put this to you. I said, are you pro-life? She said, yeah, of course. Yeah. I said, the data is that excess deaths during the period of COVID were three times higher in your state than in my province. And most of those involve vulnerable people in old age homes. Yeah. I'm pro-life. It's messy. It's muddy. I'm not going to dogmatically say I got it perfectly right and all the rest. As I said, I, I almost in every case, I was pushing things a few months before they happened, and then they did happen, and it didn't always happen exactly as I wanted, but it's muddy, messy and muddy. And I tried to balance the principles in terms of care for neighbor, in terms of the Sixth Commandment, respect for government in terms of the Fifth, yeah. but also the responsibilities of worship and freedom writ large. Yeah, All of those are valid concerns, and you put the four of them, and there's a certain juggling that takes place. I'm not... I think it's pretty hard to come down. You know, I think it's significant, the fact that most governments, actually, except for the Kenny government, uh, in Alberta has not been um, punished. Right. The Kenny government clearly, you know, COVID divided that um, situation. But, um, you know, in the rest of the country, most of the governments were reelected along the way. Um, yeah, you also have to deal with the political realities. You could have, you could have been the bold person, arguably Kenny, in some cases opened up in favor of freedom and everything else. And that proved to be his undoing. Yeah. Um, because he didn't take the people with him. And the reality of politics, you can be right. Yeah. And the reality of politics means you're gone. Right at the wrong time. And yep. is that necessarily faithful service? So, you know, that's not a nice, neat answer. Um, I, uh, you know, obviously within a church context and obviously also within the Cardist context, I've written some things about some, uh, mandates and that that have uh, had people who write checks to Cardis write um, nasty letters instead, and um, you you pay the price for it. On the other hand, if you're going to be a think tank in the public space, you can't say, "Well, this one's controversial, so we're going to sit it out because we've yeah. got supporters on both sides." Yeah, uh, you you have to do your best in terms of just trying to balance the evidence, come with your best judgment, and let the chips fall where they do. Yeah. What about the crucial question of who has jurisdiction? In terms of, do you view it more as the church should certainly take the government's view in mind and public health and whatnot, and then go ahead and make a decision from there? Or like if we come in this situation again, if the government gives a public health order, is the church, like, does the church have to follow that? Well, we, um, I was at Providence uh, Free Reformed Church in St. George where I was the chair of the consistory. Right from the beginning, we did not follow every jot and tittle of the mass of the mandates, right? When we were first able and we communicated with the public officer of health, because at that time you're supposed to have masks on entirely. Yeah. Yeah. 
And we basically said to the public officer of health in our region, we communicated with them, we recognize your authority, uh, just like we recognize the speed limits driving to church, the building code for church. We recognize the public health authority till the moment we sit down in church. From the beginning of the church service to the end of the church service, you have no authority. That's our authority. So when you say we can't sing with masks on, sorry, that's not your call. When you say we can't baptize, when you say we can't have the Lord's Supper, sorry, that's not your call. And so right from the beginning, we said the worship service, the minute we're sitting down in our bubble safely, you've walked in the church, you've sat in the pew, government, you have nothing more to say. Yeah. Church service is over. Now I need to walk back out. Now I'm back in terms of a public space. Yeah. Public rules apply. There we sought to apply. What about getting into that bubble if there was a vaccine mandate for a church? Well, I I, I think that I would have drawn the line in terms of a vaccine mandate. Um, the the mandatory vaccination, um, to, I don't think as a church you should yeah. respect that. Yeah. The church needs to be open to all. Yeah. Okay. And especially since the science didn't support it. But well, for sure. That makes know, it an that, easier that, case. That makes it a whole lot easier. Yeah. Um, the question even and but even if it did. Even if the science did support it along the way, uh, we have, you know, the science supports mandates for a lot of a lot of things along the way, and yet we have exemptions for kids and we've always had conscientious exemptions yep. along the way. Yep. Okay. Do you think we are prepared? as a Canadian society society at large for the next pandemic? And do you think we would take a similar approach again in terms of locking down and well, taking I think the bigger, the bigger The bigger question is, especially as people age, when we take a look at old age homes and everything else. Um, healthcare. Is healthcare and yeah. how, we, how we age and how we care for the vulnerable and the marginalized. And I think, you know, the greater, an equal question, there's the question of what Canadian society is prepared for. There's also the question of what the church is prepared for. Yeah. Um, I have a, I have a Catholic friend who uh, is a historian, significant public policy guy. And he said to me, he said, you know, he said, this is the first time in all the history of pandemics and all the rest where the church was not known for being on the front line of caring for those who were dying. We actually became known for something else. So I'm not sure that's good for the witness of the church. I find that a sobering thought. Were we the volunteers risking in the old age home? Like, and it wasn't easy. We weren't allowed. There weren't lots of opportunities. I, I get all of that. Yeah. The irony is early on in one of the first meetings with Premier Ford before vaccines were available, I said to the premier, if you want a way of getting the vaccines out, I'm quite prepared to go and appeal to churches to be the volunteer places where people in the community can come in and get their vaccine. I now At this point, we're still searching for a vaccine. We had no idea what it was. Yep. I suppose I was being a little naive because had he taken me up on that suggestion. You would have been uh, interesting. We would, we would have had an interesting time. But I, I volunteered in a meeting with the premier. Yeah. To say I'm more than ready to go and and to volunteer because churches historically have been on the front lines of helping people. Yeah. To me, that logic followed. Yeah. Um, and Is it? The, Sorry, go ahead. And you know, clear, clearly within our community, that didn't necessarily uh, follow through. It, it's, um, but I, as I said, and and you know, there's there's the reading of the science, and okay, you know, different people are going to read the science differently. Um, yeah. You know, I I look at various scientific professionals, and I know a good number of pro life doctors and 
professionals as a result of the work and I've consulted with it. So, you know, I've taken that consensus view, if sure. you will, and there is that group of 10 per, whatever percentage on the other side who have a different point of view. I've read their stuff and I'm not convinced by it. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's more of a, like the church not helping on the front lines as much in this pandemic? Is that a, just kind of a, a result of where society has drifted and the church's place in society has drifted over the last, let's say a hundred years. It used to be more of, you know, it was a Catholic hospital. It was a, this hospital, et cetera. Yeah. I, I think there's an element of that because I think those within church communities who were suffering did get cared for in a way that those outside, you know, we, we, we cared for our yeah. own with everything from our meals on wheels to nursing care. And, oh, yeah. and when, when there were people who were lonely, um, you know, I suspect a lot of rules were broken in yeah. terms of not letting people die alone and that, and that, you know, the, the notion of having anybody die alone is just, it's obnoxious Sickening. to me. It's, yeah. it's, it's absolutely, it's a violation yeah. of principle. And, you know, I, so, and, and some of that happened and it was a lot of frustration. So we need to be careful along the way, yeah. uh, you know, and yeah, how, how the rules were applied. Um, you know, we live in a society and we see that true, even in terms of made, if you read the Carter decision in 2015, what's interesting is the value of choice is a greater value than the value of life. Yeah. Um, to choose to live is a greater good than to live. Yeah. Um, we have the same thing in terms of there's a fear of death. There's a fear of suffering in society. Um, you know, and that comes. That's, that's not unnatural in a nihilistic society in which everybody, mm -hmm. you know, there's nothing to believe in. Yeah. Except myself. And then I look inside of myself and there's not all that much exciting to believe in either. Yeah. Um, when you have that emptiness, and that's where I think the opportunity is for Christians, not only through our words and communicating the gospel, but also in terms of the very practical policies we have and the way we live those policies. And, you know, to make our neighbors jealous, to say we have something that they don't. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, uh, I think we should hit some current politics, just because that's always fun to to get some opinions on the. And you think I have some political opinions? Oh, you know what? Yeah, I think you got a couple, definitely. Um, okay, so I think we should go through all the current, uh, the major three leaders: Pierre Polyev, uh, obviously Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and then and Jagmeet Singh. Um, maybe let's start with Polyev. Um, yeah, he's just give us some analysis on his rise to politics. Do you know? Have you talked to him personally before? Uh, just yeah, he's been on the hill a long time in Ottawa. Yeah, I've I've known Pierre for well over a decade, um, probably even about fifteen years or so. Where yeah. I've not been close to him, but I regularly at receptions with MPs, and yeah. so I sort of have this core tier of you know twenty thirty MPs I know well, and then the second tier of another sixty seventy, and he would be in that. And, you know, you recognize each other, you, shake, you, yeah. you shake hands, you chat about what you're doing and, and that. Yep. Um, I have always, you know, he is, if there is a political philosophy to define him, it's libertarian um, when it comes. But I have always viewed him somewhat as a very skilled politician. Ironically, I see him and the prime minister in very similar feigns in terms of their skill sets. Yeah. Um, they're not that different 
people um, in terms of how they go about their politics. And they're both very, very gifted at that. And Pierre clearly is much more gifted than in, in some of the retail politics side yeah. uh, than either of his conservative predecessors. Yeah. Um, the challenge is going to be how inclusive, it, you know, conserve, no party can win by themselves. And even within a party, I wrote a piece in Policy Options the day after Stephen Harper was elected saying Stephen Harper wasn't elected with a coherent philosophy. He was elected with a coalition of six groups yep. that made up. And it was managing his skill at managing the coalition yep. that enabled him to succeed for a decade. Yeah, And... Um, I don't, you know, so far, Pierre has demonstrated better skills than I anticipated at keeping the coalition together. That said, I unless he finds ways of getting beyond that core base, he's 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 engaged in wedge politics. He won the leadership by wedge politics. I'm not Jean Charest, that liberal who did, right? It's yeah. a, you were Charest, you were a liberal, you're not part of it, didn't even want your vote. And, you know, he just out-organized in that. Can you win a federal election in Canada as a conservative today with wedge politics and basically drawing that line somewhere at the 40 whatever percent of people that are there? You have to be almost flawless and almost perfect to do yep. that. Uh, so I, you know, time will tell. Um, he has done extremely well since um, since he's been elected. His his leadership campaign, um, you know, signed up triple what ordinarily the high mark of standing, you know, he took the best that ever has been and then tripled it. Yep. Uh, that's, that's impressive. Yep. It is. That's impressive. That said, let's just say he wins. Yeah. How different from a Christian perspective yeah. is a Pierre Polyev government going to be? We know on some, on, you know, on, he's a libertarian on many of the social issues. He's not uh, with us, and he's probably actually going to build uh, barriers uh, so as not to get tagged with those issues. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know where he stands on things like the expansion of gambling revenues and those sorts of things, but my guess is um, there's, you know, if he's not going to see a great deal of harm in yeah. a lot of that. So... The challenge is going to be particularly for those MPs within that party who have a different vision of what the good is, is identifying some things that they can work into the platform um, that can get. Overall, I don't, I'm not sure I see a ton of difference yep. uh, from a Christian perspective. I do from an economic perspective. Yep. And that's, you know, there are, <clears throat> there are values um, to be uh, there to be sure. For sure. But I, I don't get overly excited about it. Yeah. And I'm efficient. Just since I I was a candidate um, since 2004, I, I managed a conservative campaign in 2004. Yep. And after that, I have uh, not been a member of any political party. Yep. Right on. Officially nonpartisan. Okay. Well, you mentioned he's somewhat similar to Trudeau. Uh, what are some of those similarities you see? Is that just retail politics? Well, I see the similarity in retail politics. It's interesting. My take on Trudeau, for those who read my, my punditry regularly, um, I get criticized for being too nice to the prime minister. And by nice, I don't mean that I agree with him. I disagree with him on all, almost everything. Yeah. Um, and yet, let, let me just use the example of Senate reform. Stephen Harper came with one of the priorities. He was going to fix the Senate. 
So he, uh, you know, he, he at first tried, and then the Supreme Court said no. Then he did the eight-year terms, and he tried to work something. Nothing worked. Yeah. To the point where he quit. And when he left office, there were 18 vacancies in the Senate. Yeah. What did Justin Trudeau do? He came in, kicked all the senators out of the caucus, has this officially independent sort of thing. Let's face it, they are all small L, small P progressive yeah. senators for the most part. And now they have the vast majority. And the Senate has effectively been reformed without a single constitutional, because you're not going to be able to go back. Yeah. In a very significant, sophisticated way, Justin Trudeau has permanently embedded a, you know, we talked about the notwithstanding clause. We have the Senate as a protector of progressive values in this country, and he's appointed a whole pot, you know, for the next 25 years. Yeah. They've got a majority. Yeah. And, you know. What was Harper thinking? <laughs> it was like, so... No, you want just from just from a pure governance perspective. I say brilliant. The way Trudeau did it. He did it without a big debate, without no. He's in he's in power for a decade. The economy is going sour. Most governments in Canadian history, when they're in power for about a decade and in tough economic times, have a, a tough way of going. Um, we'll see. Um can he get a fourth term? I don't think it's impossible. Yeah, that would be remarkable. I uh, right now I'd put the odds at fifty fifty. That's pretty good for a fourth term. Yeah, I actually think that he's more likely to get a fourth term than say being replaced by Christia Freeland. Yeah, uh, yeah. Part of the reason is Quebec. Yeah. Um, he connects in in a Quebec way. You know, he has carried Quebec. Um, and you know what's interesting. Is that so? You have these regional parties. So we now have the uh, the Bloc Quebecois with what? What do they have? Forty seats, something Somewhere like that. Somewhere in that range, yeah. Okay, three hundred thirty-eight seats. They're going to change the next. So let's use the math that currently is there. Three hundred thirty-eight seats. You need one hundred and seventy for a majority. Yep. Trudeau or the the Bloc comes in. Blocks, the Quebecers decide by voting the Bloc. They don't care which party is the government. They're going to vote for regional interests. Now, all of a sudden, instead of 338 seats up for grab, we have 300 seats up for grab. Right? They take yeah, yeah. Now you need 170 out of 300. Trudeau is way more likely to get, like, he's still got 45 seats in Quebec to draw from. Yep. It would be very surprising to see the conservative or any other liberal carry that Quebec in the way that Quebecers always vote for sons of Quebec. Yeah. It's true. So could Pierre do that with a French name? Yeah, well, it's not I, really, but I, I don't think Pierre, you know, we'll see. Uh, he yeah. did draw some big crowds in Quebec. Um, what was interesting in the last Quebec election is you had, um, you know, Premier Legault winning by a landslide in terms of seats, but not in terms of popular vote. You yeah. actually had what three or four parties all at the 15 to 20 percent is that going to amalgamate into a cohesive um you definitely you know, know there, there, there is so i think i think the math you know a lot of people think about the next election in terms of politics i actually think the next election is as much about arithmetic as it is politics at this time in terms of what's accessible and what's not and you know then we go back 
can Pierre draw, you know, he's played wedge politics to date and he's very good at it, which means you get very strong in your base, but you draw quite high walls around you. Yeah. Um, is he going to make the transition in the next couple of years? I don't think without it, he can win. Yeah. And the question maybe is not who wins, but whether or not Trudeau will, or the liberals will lose the election. You know, frankly, if the recession is relatively short lived and he weathers the storm, and we don't have an election until 2025. Um, governments are doing very well financially in terms of surpluses and everything else. If if there is some sophistication in terms of where the government goes and um, they have some resources, uh, you know, Doug Ford wasn't above trying to buy our votes with our license um, stickers and that. You and I and most listeners here think that's stupid politics. It works. Yeah, there's a reason they keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. What's the, what's the biggest, is it, would you say Senate reform is the biggest positive over Dustin Trudeau's seven years? Well, I'm not sure it's a positive. I, 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 For, well, okay. I, I, I don't like the, but it's a huge, um, it's a huge change yeah. that has happened. Um, what do you think his legacy is? Like, what are people going to remember him for? If I put Senate reform, I put the Supreme Court with his nominees and everything else. <laughs> he has embedded progressivism in our in our institutions yep. for a long time. Yep. And that would be my cr- biggest critique of Stephen Harper. Stephen Harper managed government well for 10 years, but did relatively little that last. Child care, tax credit would be the, the one yep. um, significant legacy of the Harper decade yep. that is there today. Yep. Um, but for the rest, he managed. Yep. He kept the peace yep. and managed. Whereas Trudeau, you are going to see, you know, um, we'll have to see what child care. I, I'm not sure that the child care program is going to become embedded in um, dental care. We'll have to see how those things sort themselves out. But I actually think it's a progressive Senate, a Supreme Court. Um <clears throat> They have embedded a particular direction in the philosophy of public life that's going to become very difficult uh, for the rest of my lifetime. Yeah, yeah. What can conservatives learn from that uh, on their on their side? Because it is the liberals seem to take action immediately. Upon well, I, I I think number one, um, you know, this is a very Cardis thing today. Say when we talk about the various institutions of society, not just government. The government itself is made up of very inst- various institutions. Having an institutional mindset, Um, you know, leaders come and go and what a leader can do today can be undone by another leader tomorrow. When you embed something to the policy of institutions, it continues and the difficulty of changing it is very, is very challenging. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about the NDP for a second. Um, Have they been completely outflanked on the left by Trudeau? Like, do they have a party? It it is interesting. First of all, I, I think, you know, Jagmeet say it's it's an indication of our politics and not a favorable one. But here he is, a very happy, you know, it's not unlike Jack Layton in the sense he communicates a very positive, effusive personality, tries to be happy, tries to um, – he has not articulated or identified with any coherent sort of platform, which has given Trudeau all the space on the left. Um, you know, whether or not, so now the challenge for Singh is whether or not he has the, the guts, um, to pull the plug before Trudeau. He actually has to stab Trudeau in the back. Yeah. Yeah. 
um, in order to succeed. Risky. Now, does he have that in him to do it? Um, you know, he's not a backstabber. He's a nice guy. He's a I, I genuine, you know, met him a few times and all the rest. But from everything there, I disagree with him on all sorts of things. But I actually think he's an authentically nice, straight guy. And I think the only way he can win is stabbing Trudeau in the back. <laughs> so you don't think that's going to happen? Well. Unlikely. Time will tell. I'm, I'm a Calvinist. There's also depravity. Well, that's fair. That's true. That's true. Okay. Um, right. We've covered a fair amount of stuff. We're getting about that hour and a half mark. Um, do you have any suggestions? I said three in the outline here, but whatever you want of, yeah, if, if you, if you were prime minister, if you were in charge, if you could make some decisions for Canada, provincial, federal, municipal, whatever, what are like three key policy ideas that you would like to see enacted in this country within the next decade or so? Can I get political on you and not answer your question? Oh, that's okay. But no. um, so I, I I turn it around and say because we, we we always talk as if the leaders change things. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether or not the question is, if you and I are Christians at the beginning of the 21st century, what are the things that you and I can do to make lasting change in this country? Okay. And I would say the first thing is invest in institutions. Because institution changes last longer than policy changes. Yep. So become involved. Um, I think that joining your industry association, if you're a business person, and getting on the executive is as important as running, as taking on a membership in a political party. Let me illustrate a couple of years ago, I was approached by, and I'm going to be careful on the industry because I don't want to sure. call call. So an industry association that was going to be affected by an LGBTQ policy that was going to significantly impact the day-to-day retail events of this institution. It turns out the majority of the members of this industry association were Christian. Hmm. However, none of them had ever run for the board, and the board was being carried by a small group that was not necessarily represented. And they had a very couple of very progressive members on the board who drafted a policy which got adopted, which became industry association policy. And they were, because the industry was a regulated industry, they were working with government to have this imposed on the industry. That's when everybody woke up. And all of a sudden we get a call at Cardiff saying, can you help us? Yeah. And by the time we actually did the math and everything else and looked at it, we say, how in the world did we get in this thing? We don't have a single seat. We don't have a single friend on the board. Yeah. We didn't know it all happened, you know, by stealth. No, it didn't really happen by stealth. It happened because nobody bothered to show up to the industry association annual meeting and stand for the board and vote some people in. Mm -hmm. So invest in institutions right across the board. Um, join the community institutes, not just the political institutions. There's a lot of stuff that happens that makes a very real difference in the day-to-day lives of Canadians that happens at a very grassroots community level. It also, secondly, provides the sense of relationships with our neighbours that gives us credibility when we step into the political sphere. Um, I worry sometimes that, you know, when I look at... We get involved and all of a sudden, okay, somebody in our community decides to run and we all rush out and we take memberships and we come in and we flood the meeting and, you know, that's good. I did that. Yeah. Uh, the I ran against an establishment candidate and won 85% of the vote because 
literally over a thousand reformed Christians by and large signed up to support me. Yeah. Um, that has its limits though, because now you run all of a sudden, everybody steps back and, you know, okay, let's watch, uh, let's watch the Dutch mafia at work uh, is what they say. And then when you're in trouble and you need the help and you need to build the alliances, you're now down to a pure contractual relationship uh, negotiations game. You're dealing with raw politics. You haven't built the relationships over time. You haven't fought the fight. You haven't been in the foxholes with them. Yeah. We kind of skip all the other we, little we ones. Skip and we skip and we think we can run to the top. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we're surprised when we run into trouble. They're not there to help. Yeah. People got to know who we are. And you know what? We need to be part of the community. We need yeah. to. And I would double, you know, the, the numbers we cited earlier in terms of who are our neighbors. Yeah. We need to be at the forefront of, you know, refugee programs and caring for the marginalized programs and all the rest. And we'll find some unlikely allies. Yep. And in the process, it's not that we do it in order to have influence after. We actually do good. Yep. Okay. Um, along the way. I know. So institutional involvement. Institu institutions involvement. And the third is always be positive. We know how the story ends. Christ is on the throne. There is should be no such thing as a pessimistic Christian in public life. Yeah, it's a good thing to keep in mind. And when I read and I listen to the way a lot of us talk about politics and that, and I listen, I I, I don't mean to blame others. I can I can be pretty sour and grouchy on some days too when I yeah. read the news. And but then I need to remind myself of who's on the throne. And um, at the end of the day. Whether or not it results in Canada becoming a great and glorious place, or whether it results in Canada being like 95% of the other nations of the earth, uh, what, you know, we don't have any special right yeah. to God's providence in the way of riches and freedom and flourishing. And sometimes I wonder whether or not we're a little more loyal to the relative wealth and the comparative freedom and all the rest in purely civic ways than the that we've come to enjoy. And, um, you know, that's, that's not necessarily the path the scriptures have laid for God's people throughout. And so, um, it's we good. need, we need to remember where our first loyalty is. And yeah. that is, um, yeah, we're called to be obedient. Yeah. It's yeah. good to fight for these things though. And we it should is. be it doing is. our and best. But, 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 so. but, but that's why I say do it with hope. Yeah. Do it yeah. positively. Um, don't just rail against what's going wrong, but propose and seek what's going right. Be the change. And that's where, you know, we have, you know, one of some of the things we're doing at Cardis, we're digging in, trying to find arguments. We talk about imagination for a thriving society, yep. trying to create a picture, paint a picture for our neighbors of what the good life looks like. And then we recognize that good life can't be held without the truth of the gospel. Yeah. And then a doors open, a wonderful doors of opportunity open to, to share the good news, yeah. even in that process. Yeah. This isn't just dirty old politics it separate. Isn't. It's it's a gospel part of life. It's, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's wonderful. Any final uh, pitches or shout outs you want to make or any projects coming up? www.cardis.ca. Uh, we produce um, about 30 to 50 reports a year. We do 50 events a year. Uh, I think you can find over 5,000 articles on our website. Comment Magazine is a great magazine yep. that uh, has its own website. Um, I write a weekly newsletter for leaders that uh, if you hop on Cardis Insights, uh, you can find that and you can take my find my take on the weekly news there. So there are lots of ways to follow us. Yep. 
obviously, uh, we value um, the clicks and the interest. We value support. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we are above all just seek to be faithful and see where God opens doors and provides opportunities. And um, at the end of the day, hopefully, he'll receive the honor and the glory. Wonderful. Well, thank you for your time. Much thank, appreciated. Thank you for having me. All righty. Till next time, folks. Keep having real talk. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfleur, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamaga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.